right. Okay. Good to go. Got it. Okay. Well, Dr. Walsh, again, we were just talking about uh, what you do. I heard about you from Dr. Swagger. You're kind of into a lot of really cool research, and that type of research is the research that I just kind of regularly read. That's my daily reading. <laughs> so I looked up some of your articles, found it very interesting. You have a lab that, that uh, dives deep into a lot of this. So tell me a little bit about what you do. Well, um, I'm a professor at University of British Columbia and a clinical psychologist, and uh, I also uh, lead the Therapeutic Recreational and Problematic Substance Abuse Lab uh, at UBC, where I've got a, an amazing team of graduate students and and and, uh, and other students and postdocs, and, and we're researching cannabis and psychedelics broadly. Um, I'd say our focus is is on uh, integrating, you know, if I, if, I, if I were to make it broad, I'd say broad, broad focus would be integrating some of these, what I see as misunderstood medicines um, back into a post-war on drugs um, context. So, you know, there's been so much stigma and so much misunderstanding around things like psychedelics and cannabis. Um, and that's starting to fade because, you know, um, I think that kind of error in thinking, hey, if we can, that's about as generous as I can get with the war on drugs. Um, but that kind of wrongheaded thinking is, is, you know, can only sustain itself for so long. And we're seeing the war on drugs, uh, thankfully sort of winding down, at least our, the version of it that we've, uh, been living through. And so that leaves us with like, okay, now that we're not, we're not actively fighting against these substances and what, how do they fit into the new world, uh, post war on drugs world? And how do we uh, maximize um, benefits and, and reduce risks? Because that's really where I'm coming from. I'm, I, as a clinical psychologist, I'm all about harm reduction. So I recognize that, you know, drug use is part of the human experience. Um, virtually all societies use some form of substances and, and it's been this way for a very long time. So the question is, um, how do we understand these substances now that we get away from sort of an active program of misinformation that's been going on for, you know, really a short time. If you think about the length of the human interaction with things like cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms um, goes back into prehistory. So the war on drugs is really, it, it seems like a big thing to us because it's been our most of our lifetime. Um, but really it's a blip in the long sort of synergistic interaction between humans and a variety of other plant species. Now that was the war winded answer. Sorry. No, that's perfect. I love that. Um, now we've seen the war on drugs kind of start in the 60s. Is that kind of sound right to you? Where shrooms and LSD were really uh, pushed aside uh, in, during that time frame. Does that sound right? Yeah, I'd say, you know, our mod, like when I say our modern uh, version of the war on drugs, one thing that kind of interests me is that and makes me feel a little bit better about it all is that we've been struggling with how to how to work with psychoactive substances for a while. So, I mean, there was a time when coffee was illegal and you could actually be put to yeah. death for drinking coffee in Europe. So we're not, we didn't we didn't invent the <laughs> war on drugs, but this current version of it, late 60s, early 70s, as sort of a reaction to the culture wars uh, of that time, um, they really doubled down on and then doubled down again in the 80s. So Nixon in the 70s and then Reagan in the 80s. Um, really took it to this absurd level of international prohibitions and stopping all the research and criminalizing drug users. So, yeah. So we see with things like shrooms and LSD, 
um, having a very strong effective rate for things like PTSD. You know, we have Tylenol at an effective rate. Was it 0.3? Does that sound about right? And then we have something like uh, shrooms that have a, has an effective rate at fighting a lot of these mental health issues at between 2.0 and 3.0. Am I wrong on that or is that right? Well, I mean, I suppose I'm not, I'm not sure what we mean by effective rate, but they, there's a lot of promise from the research suggesting that these things can be helpful for a lot of disorders that there's not great treatment for. So, I mean, one of the things that they've been showing good results with with um, with ketamine, but also psilocybin treatment resistant depression. So I mean, it's right in the name. It's treatment resistant. That means that people have tried uh, other mainstream treatments, and it's just not working for them. One thing I I don't want to do in promoting these new alternatives is to is to denigrate what we already have. There's a lot of good treatments, and they're effective for a lot of people, but they're also not effective for a lot of yeah. people. So I just want to have, as a mental health clinician, I want to have as many tools in my toolkit as possible. It's not like we got it figured out. It's not like, oh, depression. Why would we want a new treatment for depression? Obviously, we need new treatments for depression. People are going untreated. So if it can add on to the other things that are going, I mean, things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs that we're also yeah. familiar with, they don't perform terribly well. I mean, I've mm-hmm. talked to too many people that have been helped by them to, 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 you know, dismiss them entirely. But for a lot of people, we know they're just not effective. They have nasty side effects. Why can't people choose uh, to try psilocybin? Right now in Canada, we have a situation, and I imagine it's somewhat Although I, I suppose you don't have medically assisted dying in the U.S., but no. we do have that in Canada. Yeah. But we still have these um, wild um, criminalization of psilocybin. So we have a situation where someone could, in theory, be given the right to die because of a chronic disease and uh, you know a low quality of life. Uh, associated with that disorder, and I think, you know, I think that that's a, I think that's appropriate to give people that choice. But if you are going to give that people that choice, shouldn't they be given a right to try as well? Yeah. So you can say yes, you can take your own life, but you can't try psilocybin beforehand because that's too dangerous. Yeah. It just, I mean, it's an, it's a, it. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be, it would be funny because it's so absurd mm. to say psilocybin is too dangerous, but you can, you can end your life. Yeah, so we see, like you, you mentioned earlier, how we have this huge war on drugs. How um, we have a lot of pharmaceutical companies and, and doctors prescribing SSRIs for every t- broad type of mental mm-hmm. health issue. Um, why do you think that there is this this stigma against something like uh, psilocybin or shrooms or these mm-hmm. things that are showing broad uh, progress? Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I think you know it's such a good question. I think it's a mix of things. One one is that there has been a um, an active and effortful campaign to spread misinformation about these substances that's been part of the war on drugs. So there's that. There's the fact that part of the reason we're we're scared about these drugs is because we people waged war on them. Um, and you know, if you look back, there's to to Nixon where this whole thing started. It was clearly. Uh, 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 an, op, uh, an attempt to suppress the counterculture yeah. you know, that were associated with cannabis and also with LSD and psilocybin, probably to a lesser extent. I mean, one of the reasons why I think psilocybin has been sort of selected as the as the as the classic psychedelic that's making a comeback is because, in part, because it has a shorter uh, effect in LSD, but also it doesn't have the cultural stigma mm. of LSD. 
Um, so part of it is because is because people said so. That's part of why there's a stigma. But also, I mean, I think it's it's if you trace this these stigmas back, it's it's kind of um, uh, uh, col- a part of colonialism. It's part, and, and you know, one thing that we've been seeing more and more is recognition of the war on drugs is is a is racism. It's a war on different cultures. Um, so psilocybin um, and and ayahuasca, other other uh, plant medicines, were being used by indigenous um, healers yeah. um, prior to conquest, right? Yeah. Prior to the colonial invasion, and part of the colonial invasion of North America involved uh, subjugation of religion and an attempt to you know suppress existing religion, existing sources of power. And uh, and overlay it with uh, Christian orthodoxy. So you had drugs that were, you know, uh, okay in Western Europe, like alcohol, which is a very dangerous drug. Yeah. Um, that, that double being, that double standard frustrates me so much. Yeah. So alcohol <laughs> is being forced on the indigenous people, you know, encouraged to use at the same time. Um, the Inquisition of the Americas. Uh, particularly, um, and you know, in in Mexico and South America, uh, involved the brutal suppression of uh, of psilocybin, right? Because that was the medicine. So they they would call you know those people they, they they thought that that was counter to Christianity, and the people who used the 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 medicines were tortured, and mm. it wasn't a subtle suppression. So what we're seeing is you know. As we're starting, I hope, as a society to come to grips with the aftermath of colonialism, you know, 500 years later, uh, we have to see the war on drugs as part of that because it's a suppression of indigenous spirituality. And when we talk about these drugs, even today, people are, who are still very against them and very scared of them will talk about them being evil, being, um, you know, causing you to lose your mind, lose your soul. Well, yeah. That's a hangover of, um, you know, the colonial imposition of Christianity and the Inquisition of the Americas. So on one hand, it's an innovation, uh, a negative innovation of, of Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. And, um, Very political. Well, not two of my faves. But, uh, but it's also part of a longstanding Eurocentric uh, suppression mm. and, and oppression of colonialism. So, so- it's, it's new and it's old. So we have, uh, with things like psilocybin, um, I want to know how it works. You know, with SSRIs, the premise of SSRIs is that serotonin needs to be regulated in the brain. But what's frustration, what the frustration of mine is that we know that 94, 95% of serotonin is made in the gut. So mm-hmm. there's already some sort of flaw with the SSRIs. Um, how does psilocybin work for PTSD and depression within the actual brain? Do you know? Well, I mean... <sighs> It's not a question that I think we have the direct answer to. It's certainly, there's no doubt that there's serotonin uh, agonism or sort of promotes serotonin receptors. It binds with them. And in fact, when we talk about SSRIs, I think people forget that, um, you know, a lot of what we know about serotonin and hence the development of SSRIs came from the discovery of LSD. It wasn't like we knew tons about serotonin and then we found LSD and we're like, oh, this kind of looks like huh. serotonin. It's more like we discovered LSD and then found analogs in the brain. So LSD, wow. we probably wouldn't have SSRIs. LSD came before SSRIs. We probably wouldn't have SSRIs if it wasn't for LSD. Huh. Um, I didn't know that. So serotonin is 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 
a key piece of the puzzle. There's no doubt about that. And, and you know, if you uh, block the serotonin receptors, these things aren't effective. So there's no doubt that there's serotonin binding. But does that tell us the whole story? Because we know that downstream, there's all other kinds of uh, neurotransmitter reactions and neurotransmitters are all interrelated. So it's really hard to say that it's just uh, just serotonin. I think that's overly reductionist, but it's an important piece of the puzzle. You know, when we think about something as profound as the psychedelic experience, we, I think we can just describe it at a number of levels. We can describe it at the brain level. And, and I think one of the best descriptions of that, one of the best descriptions uh, of that um, is from the group out of Imperial College in England, where they've really found the sort of default mode network and, and that the psychedelic experience seems to involve uh, opening up you know, some connections and closing off others so that new can, parts of the brain that can, can talk you break to down that don't normally talk. Sorry. Can you break down the default mode network? Um, yeah. I mean, I, and, and I'm probably not the best person to go into the default mode network, but you know, I, I, what I, what I believe is that, uh, it, it reduces some of the, um, normal connections between the emotional processing, the limbic system and the frontal cortex so that you have this sort of well-trod path between your emotional brain and your planning brain. And this can kind of disrupt that. And, and, um, Hey, hang on just one second. Can I, can we pause it and I'll see if I can't get a little bit of volume down out there. No worries. All right. See if I lay down the law. I got two kids, man. I get it. They're actually watching a show right now. So I, I completely get what you did. Somehow my show must've got, you know, probably it's this (laughs) irony where I'm on my bandwidth gets disrupted when I'm on zoom. So the very minute when I need, when I need the show more than ever, it's not there for me. (laughs) Well, so what I understand, sorry, go ahead. So sorry. So with the default mode network, what I was going to say is, you know, I, I, the big picture is what they call the entropic brain. So rather than having the brain follow tight pathways between the limbic system and the frontal cortex, you get more crosstalk between different parts of the brain that don't normally communicate. So you stay out of this default mode. And, and, you know, I think when we think about psychology, we tend to think about schemas and over, um, overtrod paths of thought. So repeated thinking and depression, unable to see the positive, always focusing on certain negative or even OCD, you know, certain obsessive thoughts. And it's really, it's like these pathways of thinking in your brain are too well, too well mapped out and you can't get off the track. Interesting. Um, And what psychedelics do is perhaps um, disrupt it. But I think, you know, it's great to talk about the brain, but really, I think we can also talk about the subjective experience and what what that does for people. So what, you know, one thing is we're finding mystical experience uh, might be part of a mediator uh, of the effect. So people have this mystical experience. And if you think about what what's what do people suffer from depression, a lack of meaning, a lack of focus, a lack of interest in life and the potential of life to have something positive right people give up hope so does how it would give you, you 
Yeah. How would you interpret that mystical experience? Well, for me, you know, I, I think we don't always have to go back to the brain and be reductionist because, um, you know, if you if you feel that life is hopeless and you have no meaning and you have a, an experience of profound meaningfulness and connection and and your life becomes mapped out in front of you in a way that sort of makes sense and you come to understand yourself in a different way and opportunities that's powerful and there's nothing really new about that if you hear about people you know from the religious literature um there are lots of times where people have a profound experience that can change their life they can you know and you can say that you can talk about it religiously you can talk about just having an incredible moment of clarity and um transcendent moments and you can mm. wait around for that or you can try to meditate and all those are wonderful ways to do it but this is a reliable way of evoking those kind of profound experiences that's interesting um, so whether we talk about the brain or whether we just talk about what's the subjective experience uh, i think being able to provide that kind of profound, insightful, powerful experience in and of itself can, can, can give people really a, a new way of understanding it. Yeah. When you look at people at the end of life, where we've seen a lot of the good uh, outcomes from psilocybin therapies, and you say, what happened? Um, they'll tell you often that they were able to see their suffering and their relationships and all the things that they were worried about as part of a larger context of meaning, as opposed to just, that's it, I'm dying. This is it. They're able to sort of fit that in with a, with a worldview that makes sense. They're not I really like that default mode network was off. And so parts of my brain were communicating in ways they weren't. They're saying, wow, I saw, or people will say, I saw God. I had a mystical experience and in whatever way that means to them. So, so you've, I think there's a subjective piece is big. Yeah. That, and that's what I didn't really get before. And I love that you've, you've brought that up multiple times now where, you know, I'm so very much about look at the evidence, look at what's the pathophys behind the brain, the neural networks, mm. you know, let's look at how LSD actually overflows your, you know, even neuroplasticity. That's an amazing, those are amazing concepts, but I like how your, your research is focusing on balancing those two, the, uh, the subjective with the objective. So how do you, with your research, uh, balance and quantify something like the subjective experience? Well, I, you know, I think what we're not, we can, these substances can work even if we don't fully understand how, you know, so we can measure someone's depression, their level of PTSD, uh, and before they have the experience and we can measure it after. And if it goes down substantially after, it's very useful for us to understand what are the mechanisms uh, that take place and how do we maximize them. But for a long time, and in many traditional medicines, we don't have to break things down to this molecular level to verify yeah. that they're effective. We just see the symptoms, we see the symptom change on the other side. Hmm. And then we also want to look at, you know, what kind of intervention is going to be most effective. So it's not just psychedelics, it's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So mm. how do we want to guide people beforehand so that they get the most out of the experience? And that environment is huge. Am I right? Mm. Set and setting is huge. Um, and so, you know, if we think that say, maybe it's something to do with mindfulness, mm. right? Maybe it's about being able to find that peace. Maybe it's about changing your relationship to your thoughts because you have so many thoughts. Yeah. 
um, that go through your head in a psychedelic session, sometimes you're able to get a little distance on them. And, and from where my perspective on psychology generally, on clinical psychology is um, what generally called like third wave behaviorism. I think it's about your relationship to your thoughts and how they reinforce you or don't is a big piece of, um, of how we function and how we get over um, mental illness. So wow. they can sort of change your relationship to your thoughts. If these are just thoughts, mm-hmm. right? The difference between um, I'm worthless and I'm having the thought that I'm worthless. Those are big differences, right? And when you're fused with your thoughts in a depression, um, you just take it as a fact. Mm-hmm. Whereas after you have a psychedelic experience, maybe you think a thousand different things and you can hold them a little bit lightly. Maybe the, you see the thought floating away in a bubble. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happens. Uh, a bunch of things can happen. But if you can get a slightly looser, um, be less bound to the reality of those thoughts and just be able to recognize them, maybe you still have the thoughts, mm-hmm. but you just address them in a different way and hold them a little more lightly. That can be a profound experience of psychedelics. So That's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of ways it can work. We can describe it at the neurophysiological level, which is fascinating, the default mode network. We can talk about mystical experience. We can talk about how people relate to their thoughts. And I don't think one has to cancel out the other. You know, when I look at this desk, I know that it's it's a piece of hardwood. I can pound my fist on it. And I could get some kind of imaging thing, and I could see that part of the reason why it's so uh, solid is because the 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 atoms are tightly bound together um or i can just say yeah it's a piece of wood and it's hard and i know it's hard because i can jump up and down on it so there's different ways to explain things whether and sometimes i think we overemphasize the molecular level uh, and underemphasize the practical because when we describe things at the molecular level it seems like we've understood it but really we've just described it in a different level i can describe the desk in terms of its atoms or i can tell you it's made of oak um, and both of those things I think are helpful. Well, I love that you're taking that holistic approach. Cause that's, that's a huge flaw within modern medicine, specifically Western medicine today is that we're trying to find that silver bullet, whether it be from COVID or, you know, cancer, we're trying to find that one drug, that one medicine that is supposed to fix everything. And that's really just not the case, you know, looking at a person's entire perspective, entire profile, medicinal profile is how we are able to treat somebody in the effective way. And what you're saying is you're taking the mystic, the subjective, the objective, the pathophys, the neurophys, you're putting it all into this one picture, researching it and figuring out how it affects each person individually. And that's awesome. And I wish more of that would occur within uh, medicine today, you know, and that's, I, that's also something that um, me and Dr. Swagger were talking about, a similar frustration. <laughs> You know, I think psychedelics beg for it, right? Because they do impact at so many different levels. So you have something like SSRIs where you don't have a profound subjective experience. And it makes sense to talk about it. what's going on in the brain because there's nothing going on anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't you talk about the brain piece? Because that's got to be where it is because you don't feel anything when you take them. And it doesn't seem that like things have changed that much. Um, so we're, we're trying to find some. And, and you know, in the physical uh, medicine, it's it's been really effective so it makes sense why we want to get reductionist in some ways because Mm -hmm. there's stuff you know you can go get a blood test and they figure out there's something wrong with you and you can get that treated and it all happens it's invisible and you never have to know it so if you're lucky you can get uh, diagnosed and cured before you even have a symptom Um, but that's not where we're at with psychology so i think we have to acknowledge uh, the subjective and the subjective includes the mystical it includes the cognitive 
Um, so, you know, that, that's where the rubber hits the road when it comes to mental health. So I think we, we don't, we do ourselves a disservice if we try too hard to take that sort of biological medicine approach. Um, I mean, if it was working great, I wouldn't have a problem with it, but there's just too many people who are not being well served by those approaches in psychiatry and psychology. So I think we need to grapple with some of these problems of living, problems of thinking, and why not address them at the level where they uh, occur? Well, Dr. Walsh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you got to get, really appreciate you. I'm going to be following up and just, I I love looking at your research. Uh, I've already looked at a few of the research articles, so I'll be keeping in touch with all your research and uh, hope you are continuing this field and dive deeper into it. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. You too. Take care.